lectureship say that in his experience of going around to different colleges and different lectureships and especially uh, uh, Christian campuses, that in his experience he was seeing that uh, believers, uh, Christians, were much more into judgment than they were, or excuse me, into justice than they were into judgment. And the way that he illustrated that was, he said, you know, you can go to a campus or you can go to a lot of churches and you can say there's eight to ten houses that need to be painted and you'll have, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of people volunteer. But if you say we have eight people or ten people or twelve people that need a Bible study, you will get no one volunteering. And he said... uh, How can this be in light of the ramifications of the gospel and judgment in eternity? And it's a good question. Why would this be so? Well, maybe we think judgment and the reality of hell is offensive. And in order for the gospel to be more palatable, to to be to be understood and embraced in a culture that doesn't like judgment very much, maybe we need to jettison that and it's, it's sort of the Phil Donahue, in the end, doesn't everybody get in kind of theology. A more recent book, uh, probably written about four years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, entitled Love Wins, basically does that. It jettisons the entire idea of judgment and, and uh, the reality of hell. Or it might be that there are a lot of folks who talk about judgment with a smile on their face rather than a tear in their eye, and we don't want to be associated with them. Or it might be, if judgment is real, then we have to do business with our own sins. We have to take our own sins seriously and not live such, such uh, spiritually capricious lives. Or it might be that we do not live day to day with the atrocities that, that are in the world and that most of the world experiences in real time. And therefore, we do not sense the need for judgment the way that it is felt around the world. And yet, when you think about it, who wants to live in a world where nothing is ever made right? Who wants to live in in a world where in the cosmos, in, in creation, in the universe, nothing is ever made right? Nothing is ever just. In the end, evil is going to win. Judgment seems to be the thing that everyone wants, but what everyone is uncomfortable talking about or thinking about, and sometimes even living in light of. And yet, it's the first big thing that Paul addresses in this letter we know as 2 Thessalonians. And there, I, I want to divide this up to help us get our mind around it. I want to divide this letter up into three different sections. The first is this, the church can abound despite opposition. The church can abound despite opposition. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. 
Now, one of the things that really stands out about this church, when you read the first letter, the, and especially that first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, this is an exemplary church. It's a model church. It is a church that ought to be imitated. It is, it is a church where the gospel is emanating from the, the converted brethren. It is, it is a church in which you know, faith and love and hope are, are the, the three parts of its reputation. This is not a static church. It is a dynamic church. Their faith is growing. Their love for each other is increasing. It's not just a church that has remained with the elementary doctrines. It's not just a church that has remained with just the, the intellectual assent that there is a God and Jesus is His Son. This is a, a place where the, this is a group of people where the faith is growing and growing up. And they're learning how to love each other. Which means, if it's increasing, they're really learning how to do business with this idea of forgiveness and generosity and all of these other pieces of what it means to be a loving church. To be patient and to be gentle and to be kind and to be self-controlled. And not only are they doing this according to the Gospel, but they're, they're doing it in the most... Well, they're not doing it in the optimal setting. They're doing it in a hostile world. There's persecutions that Paul talks about. There are trials that Paul talks about. In other words, they're learning to grow up in their faith and for their love to increase among each other and to be the church in spite of the fact that people are pressing down on them. And one of the big reasons that I think that they're able to do this, as Paul's going to tell them, is that this world will not endure forever. All the persecution, all the pain, all the suffering, all the rejection, all the opposition, all the stuff that is, is pushing back on this church in Thessalonica, what they were experiencing was only temporary. To Paul, it was important to stress that all of this that they were enduring for the sake of the Gospel, to be God's people, was temporary. It was going to come to an end. Uh, you remember... That bully in school. You know, the bully was the person that was going to find some kind of a weakness, was going to find some attribute that was different about that child, and he was going to exacerbate it and exaggerate it and, 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 and make fun of it and focus on it. And sometimes it was not just emotional, but it would get even physical. And you could be sitting there and watching it and feeling nauseous and, and feeling sick to your stomach as this kid is being bullied until the teacher or the coach would step in and that person would put a stop, put an end to the bully. And what did you feel? Everyone was relieved. It was, it was the feeling that all of a sudden there is this tension and this anxiety and, and things are not right and there's a struggle and there's pain and there's, there's agony and there's, there's anxiousness and anxiety. And then all of a sudden there's peace. And the bully has received judgment and, and justice and everyone is relieved. And Paul reminds the, Thessalon uh, the Thessalonian church that God is going to act in judgment. That there is going to be a judgment and that God will act in judgment. And in acting in that judgment, Christ, whom they are following, Christ, whom they profess, Christ, whom is the, the, the model that they're trying to follow, the person that they're trying to imitate, the person that they've given their life to and dedicated themselves to living in discipleship of, Christ, that Christ that they are following, that everybody else is rejecting, will be revealed in glory. Everyone will see Him. And not only that, those that have followed Him are going to be glorified. Christ will be glorified in His people. And so he writes, beginning in verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out 
from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you. Because you believed our testimony to you. And Paul writes to the church, kind of reminding them that there are two important things that they're to keep doing in the meantime. The first is they are to keep praying. In light of the fact that Christ is coming back and there is judgment and there's going to be a, a justice that is going to be meted out, they are to keep praying. He says in chapter 1, verse 11, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and that by His power He may bring you to fruition or bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, in light of all of these things, guess what? We just keep praying. We just keep praying. We just keep praying. You know what stops praying? Nothing. It's not even the persecution and, and the injustice that will stop it. You keep praying. And then number two, the second chapter beginning in verse 14, you stand firm. In light of all of these difficulties, you stand firm. And so he says, He called you to this through our Gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, say it. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. Now, just a minute ago, one of the things I had you write down, it was up here on the screen, were the words, this world will not endure forever. The problem is that in spite of, the, of, of all of the good things that are happening with this church and the fact that they do kind of have this perspective that, that the world will not endure forever, that this persecution has a, a shelf life to it, they are still struggling a bit. The Thessalonian church is struggling, which is what Paul will begin to address in chapter 2. And I want to give you kind of a... a uh, a heading for that, and it is, you know, the church should not be shaken. In spite of opposition, in spite of, 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 of the dangers in the ancient world of being a believer, the church should not be shaken. Now, problem number one. In First Thessalonians, the people are a little shaken because brethren, their brothers and sisters, their loved ones, their, their, their fellow Christians, their fellow disciples, some of them had fallen asleep in death. They had, they had passed on, and yet Jesus had not come back. He had not come back. And Paul has to tell them that Christ will come back, and all of the children of light and all the children of the day will live with Him forever. Therefore, don't worry about the dates, and don't, don't worry about, uh, about times and days and all of these kinds of things. Don't worry about that. Christ is going to come back. But then you get to the second letter to the church in Thessalonica and you find a second problem, which is sort of the opposite. In 2 Thessalonians, there have been some false teachers that have arrived. Maybe they have, they have kind of jumped on the fact that, that, uh, that Paul has used this term children of the day. And they maybe have jumped on that, but they have arrived at that church and they told the church that Jesus has already come back. And, and the church is a little shaken by that. And so Paul writes in the, first, uh, the second chapter, first verse, he writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. 
What Paul is basically saying to these folks, to your brothers and sisters and mine in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, was that the false teachers and their teaching was that, false. What they were, what they were purporting to be true was not true. Christ had not come, come back. They had not somehow missed the second coming of Jesus and missed out on all of the blessings of being children of light and children of the day and living with, with, with God forever. And the result of the teaching was more than just the NIVs becoming unsettled. In the original language, the word that is being used here describes what happens to a ship that's forced from its mooring by, mooring by a strong sea or by strong waves. Basically, what Paul is saying is that this church, because of believing this false doctrine from these false teachers, is coming apart. They're, they're coming untethered. They're, they're falling apart. They're coming apart. And on top of that, they're alarmed, which literally is anxious, that, that somehow they've missed out on everything. And they're doing it in spite of, and, and they're, they're continuing to be faithful, and they're doing that in spite of the fact that there's this great opposition, this persecution, and trial that's come upon them. And you can only imagine what they're thinking at this point. What's the use? But what follows as Paul's teaching, quite frankly, is highly debated. The, the secret power of lawlessness you find in chapter 2, verse 6, the man of lawlessness uh, who embodies that lawlessness in, in verse 3, the, the what of verse 6, or the one the what that holds him back or the one that holds it back in verse 7 is, is all highly debated and, and, and highly controversial in, in, in many realms. I like what Leon Morris says, one of the, the great Bible scholars of the 20th century, in his commentary on, on First and Second Thessalonians, says this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of the Pauline writings and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to many extravagant speculations. I agree. Now, and not meaning to be funny, so I'm, that's a heads up not to laugh. Some people think that it's the Pope. I don't think so. Uh, the Pope thought it was Martin Luther. I don't think so. The bottom line, lots of ideas about the man of lawlessness, but I think the idea has to be relevant to the, third, the church in Thessalonica who are in the crisis more so than to us. Paul is writing a personal letter addressing a personal crisis that this church is personally going through at that time in, in, in the, the age of, of, of the kingdom. And so the, the idea that he is expressing to them, the teaching he is giving to them in the second chapter has to be very relevant to them. And on top of that, remember that Paul only wrote this. This is not a teaching that you find say, in, in, in Colossians, or, nor do you find it in, in other, other letters that Paul has written. Paul only writes this to our knowledge to the church in Thessalonica. Now, with all of that said, I'll say up front, I do not have all the questions in my mind answered, but I'm going to tell you what I think about this passage. Paul in 1 Thessalonians has told them not to worry or to fret over signs. You remember that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, about these times, don't worry about that stuff. I'll read it to you. The first two verses of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, they have some straightforward 
information, some information straight from Paul himself that, that we do not have. And in, you know, in chapter 2, verse 5 of Second Thessalonians, he's saying, you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. So I don't think he's going to be contradicting himself. I mean, he's not telling them to get worried about all of these signs. I think what he's doing is trying to give them some straight information that we don't have that's going to help them in a present situation. So, point one, I don't think that Paul is going to contradict himself in the second letter. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is that no one knows the dates when Jesus is going to come again, when that final judgment is going to happen. It will be like a thief in the night. Therefore, be alert. Over and over, it's about being alert. Living your life in light of the reality that Jesus is coming again. Don't look for the signs because no one knows it will come like a thief in the night. Point two. There is a tendency in the Christian world to make this man of lawlessness the Antichrist. You read many of the commentaries, most, in fact, probably the majority of the commentaries, even though I've not read all of them, uh, my guess would be that most of them, at least most that I've read, make this man of lawlessness, they make him synonymous with the Antichrist. I see no reason for that. I think it's completely unnecessary. The term Antichrist appears in only four passages in the entire Bible, and none of those passages are in Thessalonians, in either of the, the two Thessalonian correspondences, or in the book of Revelation, even though when you think Antichrist, what do you think of the book of Revelation? It's not in there. It's in First and Second John. The Antichrist, according to John, who is writing about him, is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, or he is the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, 2 John, verse 7. Point three. There is no need, in, in my thinking, to rush to the second coming of Jesus with the man of lawlessness. When John wrote about the Antichrist, now we're stepping out of Thessalonians, when John wrote about the Antichrist, he was addressing his own present time. He, he was not, uh, he was, I don't think that he was talking about some mysterious figure that was going to show up right before the end of time. He, what he's writing about is a, a figure that appears in his own present time, not some mysterious figure that is somewhere down the road. Look at... 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, up here, in the screen, up here on the screen. If John is writing towards the end of the first century, 90 to 96 A.D., he says, at that time, even, what's the next word? Now, many antichrists have come. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. Now, I think in the context of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think the same thing is happening here. The secret power of lawlessness in chapter 2 verse 7 is already at work. The man of lawlessness, it appears, is someone, someone human, who is going to embody that lawlessness. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power, signs, wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Now, with that in mind, point four is connected. Point four, the language of the man of lawlessness's overthrow is not necessarily the end of time. 
Now, the man of, of lawlessness that Paul is talking about here in chapter 2 will be a figure, look at verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of His mouth and destroy by the splendor of His coming. Now, that's basically the passage right there that says, here's this mysterious figure, this Antichrist-type figure, which, again, I don't believe that they're the same. Here's this man of lawlessness that is going to appear at the end of time and at the second coming because of the language of, of, chapter, of, of, of chapter 2, verse 8, the overthrowing with the breath of his mouth and destroyed by the splendor of his coming. We go all, all of a sudden to the second coming, the end of time. And I have to say, it does sound like the end of times. It sounds like second judgment, final, you know, second coming, final judgment kinds of stuff. But here's the thing. Uh, and I first started thinking about this in uh, some study over the years of Matthew chapter 24. Uh, one of the, the preeminent present scholars here in the United States in the New Testament is a fellow by the name of D.A. Carson. Uh, you've heard me uh, quote him from time to time. He says that just because it sounds like second coming doesn't mean that it necessarily is the second coming. In the context of Matthew 24, he, he writes, there can be judgments before the final judgment at the end of time. For instance, was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 a judgment of God spoken by Christ 40 years in advance, was it a judgment of God on Judaism? Yes. Was it the second coming? No. Think about the language of Revelation chapter 1. You have in Revelation chapter 1, you have John on the island of Patmos in exile. And the church is, is, is right on the brink of being tossed off the cliff by the Roman Empire. And there's going to be lots of questions about who is really in charge of the universe. Is it going to be Caesar or is it going to be God? Who is really enthroned and in power and in charge of all things? Is it the guy that's at the center of, of the universe or the God that's at the center of the universe? Or is it the guy that's seated in the middle of Rome? And so for these, these Christians who are receiving this letter to kind of understand who's on their side... There is this, this image of this glorified Jesus. Now, it's not literal. It's given in this apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language was, was built in order to give people an encouraging word, to encourage them and to help them to see the strength of God. They didn't have XX, FX effects back in the first century, so they used apocalyptic language. And so if, if, if your people are the ones that are getting beaten up in the Old Testament by Babylon... What kind of language do you need to hear to believe that your God is going to be able to take him? It's the kind of language that says, you know what? Our God is going to whip Babylon and, and bring judgment on them and destroy them because of their inhumanity to men. Guess what? He's the one who rides on the back of angels. He's the one that comes in the clouds. He's the one that can turn the sun red. He can wipe out half the stars in the sky. Now that kind of God, in the way that he's described, is the kind of God that can take care of a place like Babylon. And so that's what you find in Revelation chapter 1. You find, you find Jesus being given such this, 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 this over-the-top appearance in order to give people the understanding that He is it. He's the one that has the sword coming out of His mouth. He is the one that is all-powerful. He's the one that goes wherever He wants. He is the one that has conquered death. He is the one that is in charge of His church. And then you get to the second and third chapter. And what does he say, for instance, to the church in Ephesus? He says, you know, I have all, all of these things I really like about you. You hate the Nicolaitans, and I, and I do too. 
But here I have this against you. You have to return to your first love. And then what does he say? If you don't, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. That is, he's going to come and judge the church in Ephesus. Is it the second coming? Is it the final coming? Is it the final judgment? No. But it's Christ coming in judgment on his church. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says in the chapter in chapter eleven, he says, you know, this church has really got so many great things going for it, but it's also got some problems it needs to address. And one of the big ones is the Lord's Supper. Here's the Lord's Supper. We're thinking about the cross. We're thinking about the blood of Jesus. The fact that we're all forgiven, that we're hopeless without God's grace, and here we are dividing ourselves up over those who have and those who do not have. Some are not waiting on others. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a divisive, completely fragmented church at the very point where they should be all united in the grace and the need for everyone at the foot of the cross to receive mercy from God. And guess what? Because they were so messed up on that, Paul says, that's why some of you, not because of, of, of anything else, but, but because you're so messed up on the Lord's Supper, that's why many of you have gotten sick. And that's why some of you have even fallen asleep. Is it judgment? Yes. On a church? Yes. Is it the second coming? No. So what we have here in the end, I think the man of lawlessness was someone the Thessalonian church recognized because Paul had told them about him to prepare them ahead of time. He says, don't you remember? Don't you remember? I talked to you. I talked to you. I talked to you. He's given them information that we don't have. But he's given them information to help prepare them. To prepare them ahead of time who has not yet made his appearance and because he has not yet been revealed, the second coming of Jesus has not happened. Therefore, the church continues to live out its calling. Third chapter. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. He says you keep on praying. In verse 1 of chapter 3, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil, evil people, for not everyone has faith. He says not only keep praying, but also watch the idleness. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. He writes to this church, We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And then finally he says to them, Never tire of doing good. And as for you, verse 13, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And perhaps there are some needs that, that you've come here tonight, some spiritual needs that, that talking with our shepherds and sharing with our shepherds would just be about the, the greatest thing. And we're going to invite some of these shepherds to come down to the front. If there are spiritual needs, maybe you're struggling with your faith. Maybe there's some things that, that, uh, that are going wrong or off track with your life and you need to get it righted again. And you need the prayer and your counsel and the aid and the help in this struggle with your shepherds and with your church. And you need to make those things known tonight. Or maybe, maybe you've just never have allowed the gospel to go all the way down to the inside and to change you. In recognition of the fact 
that it's all hopeless to try to earn that salvation. I mean, even, even if you lived a pretty good day, if you're honest, you know that that day is going to be filled with thoughts that were not right and even, even from time to time some, some, some emotions and some impulses that were not right, that were not godly. And you're realizing that the only way that you're ever going to become that child of God is if you just surrender yourself to Him. And that's what the church in Thessalonica had done. There was opposition. There were trials. There were all kinds of things that, 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 that were unsettling them. But the one thing that Paul kept calling them back to was to remember the Gospel. Remember what God has done in you. Remember what it is that you are grasping and hold fast to that and to stand firm to. Because that is the thing that makes the blessings come pouring into your life and into your heart like a waterfall. And if that describes you tonight, our shepherds can help you with that too. They're going to be down here, right down here at the front. And for those who, who are ready to praise God, we want you to stand now and to sing with me and to sing with Jeff as we praise God together.